Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. to go back and look at some of the strategies that helped us to get to a point where we were a more beloved community and perhaps remind us of some of those places where we found opportunities that, you know, linked us more than it divided us. Appalachia Meets World, podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in Eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachia meets world. It's another week. We're back. It's Will. And Neil, what it is. Big week. Super Bowl week. Yeah. Who you got? I got a Kelsey brother. (laughs) You're going with the Kelsey brother? Their podcast slightly more popular than this one so they know what they're doing you think we should get on their podcast you think we can get on i think they should be on ours Uh, that's a good point brothers to brothers (laughs) yeah brothers to brothers some less popular brothers talking to some more (laughs) popular brothers some non-famous brothers talking to to famous yeah i mean i'll humble myself and and i'll be on their show if they want me to but you know where they're from, right? Yeah, they're from right around the corner from you. Yeah, we got an in. I know, I know. You should be able to hook us up, especially after one of them wins their second Super Bowl. Especially after we're sitting here promoting them on our own yeah. podcast. No kidding. Their numbers are going to go through the roof after this week. It's ridiculous. More importantly, what are you fixing for Super Bowl Sunday? I mean, appetizers, of course. Yeah, I'm, that's all I'm talking about, appetizer-wise. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'll go with my classic Sausage Stars, which is slowly becoming a a household favorite. You want to tell the listeners what Sausage Stars are? It's just this uh, sausage, meat, cheese, peppers concoction that you you, uh, cook, mix all together, and then you put it in these... I forget what they're called, but when when you make them, you you kind of put them in the center and then wrap this stuff like a dumpling, or you know, yeah, kind of like a dumpling, and then you bake them, then you let them cool, and they're fantastic. <laughs> okay, I, I think I might do the buffalo, just the classic buffalo chicken dip. Of course, I'll do that because I mean that is like my wife makes the best one ever. And I assume that you're smart enough by now to only buy the multi-grain Tostitos. Oh, yeah. It's a fixture. Yeah. It's going to be a somber Super Bowl for me, you know. I mean, it's the first one in like 10 years Tom Brady hadn't been in. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to it. It was also a weird week in regards to, did you see the balloon? Chinese balloon? <laughs> what did you yeah, think about that? Flew over the, the house. Balloon. Uh, (laughs) i I imagine if it flew anywhere near (laughs) that location it would get shot at a couple times oh yeah people just firing in the air (laughs) yeah if it flew over kentucky it's it's going down (laughs) so there's no question in my mind it was just weird 
I heard somebody say they waited till it got over to Myrtle Beach because they didn't care if anything happened to Myrtle Beach. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, I just thought it was odd. I mean, we have satellites in space taking pictures. Why can't they just take a picture of anything they want? I mean, I would really feel like Google Earth would have came in a lot more handy. <laughs> no, kidding. no kidding. What what more can they get that they can't get from Google? <laughs> I know. I mean, it's amazing. I got cameras all around my house. I got some friends that they they just pull up Google Earth to look at their driveway. And I'm like, hey, you guys know this isn't live, right? <laughs> they, they they substitute it for the ring. They don't have a ring. Yeah, they don't. They don't have a ring. They just use Google Earth, which is about three months three months behind. <laughs> yeah. Like, I know I saw that car in the driveway. I knew it was there. <laughs> yeah, you got some app news for me, Willie? Yeah, I got a little bit today. I, I just wanted to reiterate about the ARC Appalachian STEM Academy, the Appalachian Entrepreneur Academy. Applications are due today. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So better hurry. If you want to get them in? Get them in. If you're listening to this beyond February 10th, sorry about your luck. Another little piece of Appalachian news since we're talking about the ARC. They just released their recent request for proposals or RFP for the power grant. You know, the power grant's been around since 2015. They periodically release some funds. Right now, it's $65 million for the current RFP. And if you're not familiar, the power grant stands for Partnerships for Opportunities and Workforce and Economic Revitalization Initiative. So really, it just targets funding to bring economic diversity to coal-impacted communities. Since 2015, they have given out $368 million to 449 projects in 360 counties. I just want to say the application is due for uh, April 19th. We'll put it in the show notes. You got any more app news or is that it? You know how we like to talk about festivals on here? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, like to mention our favorite. <laughs> Mount Laurel. You know who Yo-Yo Ma is? Yo-Yo Ma. <laughs> apparently he came to the Appalachia area I know one person he spoke to was Dr. Bill Turner oh, okay. but, you know he was influenced by what he saw in Appalachia and he's been going on this I think world tour of trying to bring communities cultures together they're having a three-day festival in Knoxville at the World's Fair Park you remember the World's Fair remember when it yeah I remember being little and when they built that big gold ball in Knoxville yeah <laughs> anyway it's at the World Fair Park called Our Common Nature, an Appalachian celebration with Yo-Yo Bond friends. It's also going to have Chris Tile from Nickel Creek. If you never heard of Nickel Creek, check them out. Also, Rihanna Giddens. If you've never heard of her with the Carolina Chocolate Drops, she's fire. That's a couple of the friends. They're going to be more there. They're going to celebrate Appalachia, the food, the storytelling, how to have poets, etc. So I think it'd be a pretty cool event. So you can check it out online, get tickets May 25th through the 27th. But that, that's all the Appalachian news I had. I thought it was a pretty cool event that they're planning there in Knoxville. Uh, something to check out. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, it's awesome. One thing I wanted to talk about, though, I know we referenced Black History Month last week. Mm -hmm. Do you even know much about the history of Black History Month? You mean like how it became Black, how it Black History Month? Yeah. No. 
I had to look it up. I mean, obviously, we've been celebrating it for a long time, and, and we always do, but I, I really didn't know much about the history. But uh, it was originated pretty much by Carter Woodson, the, the famed historian. He was born in Virginia, but he worked in the coal mines in West Virginia before he was able to go to high school. Ended up attending, get this, Berea College. He was a graduate of Berea College before he got his PhD at Harvard. He was only the second black person to get a PhD behind W.E.B. Du Bois at Harvard in history. So he was a historian and he started what he, in 1926, what he called Black History Week for Black Americans to be proud of and to ensure that Black people were celebrated, but were part of American history and that were recognized by white historians. So that was part of why he started the week in 1926. He had one quote. He said, it's not so much a Black History Week as it is a history week. We should emphasize not Black history, but the Black in history. What we need is not a history of selected races or nations, but the history of the world void of national bias, race, hatred, and religious prejudice. I thought that was a pretty cool quote. He specifically had it on the second week of February because it coincided with both Frederick Douglass's and Abraham Lincoln's birthday, something that I never knew. I didn't know that either. And it was originally a week Originally a week, it gained popularity, and in 1970, students and educators from Kent State University in Ohio expanded it to a month. And so in 1970, it became Black History Month, and Gerald Ford recognized it in 1976, and every president from, from then on has recognized it. The last quote I'll say from Carter Woodson about Black History Month, Black History Week in his time. If a race has no history, it has no worthwhile tradition. It becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world and it stands in danger of being exterminated. I thought that was a pretty powerful quote to just show how we need to celebrate the past and not forget. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of times in our society and in our age group, we lump Black History Month into the civil rights movement and associate Martin Luther King with with it more profoundly than than we do Carter Woodson. So uh, I'm glad you mentioned that piece of history and gave us the origination. Something I never really knew, but I'm glad you mentioned the civil rights movement, which leads us into who we're having on the show tonight. Yeah. Looking forward to this conversation, Will. I am too. You know, I that, that's another area, obviously, we know about the Martin Luther Kings, the, the great pioneers of the civil rights movement, but I'm often intimidated by understanding the history of the civil rights movement. I, that's why I'm looking forward to this conversation with Miss Thompson. She is the current president of the, the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. So I love to find out more about the Institute itself, but also a little bit about her. Yeah, I'm looking forward to visiting there as well. So without further ado, let's get her on here. All right, let's go. On the show today, we have a special guest, Miss Dewana Thompson. She has a long career as a strategist and organizer focused on long-term organizing and empowerment of communities of color. She's from, born and raised, Birmingham, Alabama. She's the current president and CEO of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. 
named repeatedly by Alabama Tourism as the number one attraction of the year. She's also founder of Woke Vote and partner and co-founder of Think Rubik's, an organization and creative problem-solving firm. Uh, among other roles that she ha has had in the past, she has also led campaigns for Senator Cory Booker and President Barack Obama. Dewana, you wear many hats and I know you are super busy and we appreciate the time and thanks for being on the show. Absolutely, Will. Uh, I think if you, I know they can't see me, but my hair is so big, I, I really don't even get a chance to wear a hat. So that's why they keep giving me stuff to do, <laughs> you know. So, um, but no, I, I I'm honored to to be with you all today, and and super honored to talk about the work that we've been able to do in community and and just get into it. As getting into it, we'll ask the qu first first kickoff question that we ask all our guests. As most, most Appalachians, big on history, big on tradition. Our family's big on tradition as well. And one of those traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. Absolutely. We have this big spread of appetizers, bigger than the actual meal. So we <laughs> want to yes. Do you have a favorite appetizer, just holiday dish? Oh, man. So we, we also, um, as a family... Are, are big appetizer people. And so we, my favorite probably is something that we call white chicken chili. And y'all know what white chicken chili is? Yeah. So yep, you know, yep. my aunt probably makes it the best out of everybody, but I would like to say that I'm like number two, but it's so good because you can eat it just as a soup or you can put it on chips, you know, or you can eat with bread. Yep. And, but we always have everything from like meatballs to a full charcuterie to pasta salads three different kinds of set like it's so much that by the time you ate all of that it's like oh there's a meal coming after this you know I mean and so my mom just says every round you know just kind of goes higher and higher we say that in our church too so it's hilarious <laughs> but I would say it would be white chicken chili it's my nice. my favorite nice appetizer yeah our mother makes that as well it, it's uh it's very good if you're two and your aunt is one our mom's gotta be three if she doesn't <laughs> fit in that one two category somewhere <laughs> listen I, I mean it really is kind of like my go-to and anytime someone says can you cook I'm like absolutely what's your what's the deal the dish you're gonna make I always say white chicken chili because I, I know I can make it it's not gonna burn you know what I mean it's my yep. claim to fame so it's yep. mm -hmm. awesome I love it I'm a big deviled eggs guy you know I'll eat them all yeah deviled eggs are good Especially if you put like a little bacon on top, like we do in this, you know how we do with a little, yep. you know, it's, it's yep. a, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we, we do a lot of dips usually. And uh, I always like to tell our guests, if, if you haven't, you know, you dip Tostitos in whatever dip you have, you really need to take it to the next level and make sure you get the multi-grain Tostitos. Oh my God. They're so good. I love they're so the good. grain. Oh my yes. God. So good. Yes. Another believer. Another Finally, believer. Oh my gosh. They are so good. About. I'm yes. telling you because I also make something called Roteo dip, which y'all may know. It's a cheese dip that has like beef and sausage and different yeah. things in it. Oh my yeah. gosh, with the with the multi-grain chips. Yeah. Now is this are we talking about Appalachia? Are we talking about this is a food channel network conversation. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's, it's <laughs> when you take the Appalachia, you definitely talk in food as part of the custom and traditions anyway. So Absolutely. you know, uh, but yes, you're making me hungry, uh, you know, at this moment, but it's it's all good. <laughs> Obviously, Birmingham is, is in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, but also has a long history, rich history in regards to the civil rights movement. 
And we wanted to have you on really because you are the president of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. So just wanted to ask you, you know, what led you into that role and maybe a little history of the institute itself? Well, absolutely. Uh, it's funny because I I really had not planned this opportunity or planned, you know, to seek out this opportunity as a part of my career path. The Institute has been around for now 31 years. So it's sort of been sort of a, a traditional place for me, you know, um, and it's rooted in our community. So you grow up, you know, if you go to any school in Birmingham City Schools, you're going to the Institute at some point, right, for something. And so it's like a staple. And even in my earlier years, um, in my profession, my first job was working at the Birmingham City Council, and I did community engagement on behalf of the council president and the and the eight other community uh, uh, council members there. And a lot of the programming that we would do, particularly with our council president, was centered around the Civil Rights District, which is where the Civil Rights Institute sits right across the street. Um, from the 16th Street Baptist Church where the four little girls were bombed. And it also sits right across the street from the historic Kelly Ingram Park. And so there's just always something. It's right down the street from the historic Fourth Avenue Business District, which if you know anything about A.G. Gaston uh, and his uh, heritage um, and, and, and legacy, it's all, all in this area. And so a lot of the programming that I did when I first started my my work was sort of centered in this area because my counselor had an affinity, if you as you can imagine, to make sure that we did programming that helped people to understand what was the unique civil rights story that is Birmingham, but also what are our opportunities to advance a human rights, a human dignity conversation at any moment in the context of where we are living in that moment. So that being said, I always had, I've always been in and out of the building and loved and cherished and really it's a sacred place for me, but I never saw myself running the space, particularly while still also maintaining a full-time firm and a nonprofit <laughs> organization and other things. And I think it really speaks to something that is a value set for me, which is, you know, if there's an opportunity to serve and you know that there is something unique that you can do that's going to move uh, or push the agenda forward on behalf of your community, it's really hard to say no, you know, um, to that. And I think that at the time that this opportunity, I've been in this role since um, March of 2021. And so we're coming up on my second year anniversary here shortly, or, I, you know, technically, right? Um, and so at the time before, right before this, there, you know, COVID happens, you know, um, there's, there have been leadership transition. There have been a couple of other sort of missed opportunities that, the Institute um, really had begun to, to, to wear the impact of. And I got a call from the board chair, who's also the current board chair, Isaac Cooper, as well as a call from Mayor Randall Whitfin, <laughs> By, might I add, at six o'clock in the morning. And he was like, look, I know you got a lot on your plate. I know you love your city and you're doing a lot for, for the community, but I really need you. And at this time, it was supposed to be interim. He said, I really need you to go over and sort of wrap your arms around what's going on at the Institute because we need some fresh eyes, some fresh leadership. We need some we need something to catapult the Institute back to sort of where it has been before maybe the last five years or so. And, you know, I thought I can do anything for six months, which is initially what you know what I mean, like. I wasn't, you know, I was like, oh my God, it's so much to do. It's an election year. It was so many things happening, but it's the Institute, 
it's like a family member. How do you say, how do you say no? Right. Especially when I could also clearly see opportunities, you know, to move the Institute, you know, um, further in its mission um, at that time. And so that's really how this happened. And then y'all know how it happens. Once you get in the space, you know, it is what it is, you know, they, they it's <laughs> like, oh, we, we don't remember saying six months. We don't remember saying Instagram. I don't know where you heard that. And so I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, well, if we're going to do this, then let's do it. You know, so we, you know, we've put together a five-year strategic plan and some other things. And I'm happy just to report, you know, that the Institute is really, you know, back and sort of bolder than ever. And it's really needed, I think, in the time frame that we're in right now in our, not just in the, in, in, in the South, but just in the country and in the world. It's just, there's such a conversation right now around values, particularly around human values, human dignity. Um, there's such a conversation around social justice and who counts and, you know, um, whose voices matter. And there's such a conversation around issue-based community work, whether it's food deserts or housing justice or education opportunities or, you know, job opportunities, industry, all of, there's just so, so many things happening right now that require a skilled eye and a skilled approach to activism that were, that kind of uh, require us to go back and look at some of the strategies that helped us to get to a point where we were a more beloved community and perhaps remind us of some of those places where we found opportunities that, you know, linked us more than it divided us. And so I'm excited to be doing that work with the Institute at this moment. And I, and I think it's a critical work that that's, that's needed. As part of that work, I, I read that historically when the Institute first got started, that they made a point to call it an institute Absolutely. rather than rather than a museum because yeah. they wanted to focus on this action-oriented programming. Is that what you're talking about? And what kind of programming do you have? And what, what types of steps do you take in regards to action? Well, that's like one of my favorite things to note about the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute is that we, though we have a thriving museum function and we were actually the first to um, of our kind to be accredited by the American Museum Alliance, it is a component of our experience. It's not the experience, right? Because um, our founders realized that along with the preservation of history, which is a part of our mission, which is to specifically preserve the history of what happened in the civil rights, uh, civil rights movement here in Birmingham and the surrounding areas, but it also felt very much like it had to be an institution of learning and research and also a community institution that can basically be a place where you can have courageous conversations and programming that allow people to question and to stretch their ideas and their minds around social justice, right? And civil, and civil rights. And so they were very, very, very intentional about naming it an institute versus a museum because there's an action implied in institution. There's a, a, a sort of a greater calling, if you will, that's implied with an institution versus a museum. Not that the museum cannot teach. In fact, the museum is one of our greatest, it's, it's really one of our greatest tools that help us to build down certain barriers before we even can have a conversation, right? I like to say all the time that people learn differently. You know, I'm a very visual learner myself. Um, I'm also a person, if I write something down, I can remember it. I have a, a very vivid memory. And so for me, 
you could talk to me all day, right? And I'll retain, but it's nothing like an image or something that I'm reading or that I'm writing that I'll probably retain just a bit more. And so what the museum allows us to do is to really saturate someone's thought process prior to giving them just, you know, our opinion or our, you know, our thoughts. It allows them to think about their own ideas and things and sort of see some different perspectives without having to feel like that they're immediately being asked to consider or to 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 question something differently. And then we allow the museum to inform, to teach, and then to to really raise a healthy curiosity, which is what we want. We want people to have a healthy curi- a cu- healthy curiosity around what they just experienced, what's possible, what are you doing? So our programs that shoot off from that, we have a complete education arm. So we have um, our legacy program, which is our signature program. It's our longest lasting running program. And it's where we take high school seniors from the region and they learn together in a uh, academic calendar year. They learn everything that that there is to know about the civil rights movements, particularly also what happened in the state of Alabama. As you know, so many different points of civil rights history happened in this state alone, but also regionally. And they learn how to communicate and to to have those conversations those hard conversations they learn how to question values and or how to how to express their values and how to respectfully question others you know as it relates to what they believe and the beautiful thing is they come out of that program becoming docents and so they're able to then to actually take people through the museum and give a perspective can you imagine like a perspective from like a 19 year old on something that happened 50 years ago, it's going to be always refreshing, right? Or a 17-year-old or 16-year-old, it's going to be refreshing because they're still seeing it through the eyes of a current lens and able to apply that. So our legacy program is one of our most um, intentional and impactful programs that we've seen. We've graduated literally hundreds of students um, over the years through that program, and it continues today, as well as we have a version of that that happens in our elementary schools. We're in about four elementary schools every year. Um, So um, obviously, when you're talking to younger minds, the conversation is not always sort of on the history. It's more about conflict resolution and what does it mean to value a person and, you know, those kinds of things. So we're able to help them begin their critical thinking process around justice and human rights. And so when you're talking to a 10 year old about it, it's just, you know, they their minds have not necessarily been, you know, uh, bombarded with what I would call big people thoughts, right? <laughs> Adult yeah. thoughts around things. It's it's much easier for them to get to a point of camaraderie and get to a point of seeing each other as equals. You know, um, yeah. they see they see it much simpler than we sometimes tend to see it as as big people. And so we love that programming. We have a full research department and archives department. We have one of the largest archives in the South. Uh, We have over 10,000 pieces of artifacts um, in our archives. And so a lot of times we are being called on to do research for for movies, books. You know, people do a lot of their um, educational or academic research for their degrees. Um, There are always companies and nonprofit organizations, schools that come through and we do programming, you know, on behalf of their entity, depending on what it is that they're trying to learn and how they're, you know, what it is that they're trying to experience together. So 
between that and, you know, celebrating all of the things that, you know, and commemorations and, you know, this year is the 60th anniversary of everything. If you don't know, it's the, <laughs> it's the 60th anniversary of the civil rights movement, particularly in the state of Alabama. But this was the year of everything you can, can really think of, uh, particularly the Children's March that many of you probably know about the historic Children's March, particularly the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church and other things happened this particular year. And right across the way in Mississippi, this was also the year that Megger Edwards was assassinated. And so there's so many things that the Institute has to be sort of a, a voice and, and a space and a light and a, a, a dictionary and a, and a Britannica and, you know, all those kinds of things to allow people to wrap their brains around what has been and what is not so possible. So you said something about getting high school seniors as part of that legacy program. Is that something that's required by the school system or is that something that they have to sign up for? I'm just curious how that happens. It is not required. It is something that they sign up for. Okay. I will say we have a really great relationship with not just the Birmingham city school system, but the surrounding school systems that all um provide this opportunity to their students. And so we don't have to necessarily, you know, there's no push and pull on whether or not the, pro the program is provided. It really is up to the student once they come into the knowledge of the program for them and their parents to determine that this is something that they want to do. And we have never not, we have always been with the waiting list for that program. And so it is our goal, hopefully, as we move into this next sort of 30 years to be able to increase the amount of students who are able to matriculate through that program. As you can imagine, that's a that's a fund, you know, sort of a, a, a budget conversation because we do invest in those young people. They are, they get to travel, they get to do quite a bit of things. And so in order for us to increase that, it requires, you know, um, more investment in that program. And, uh, and people love the legacy program. So they, so it tends to be one of the things that people give to the most, but we also don't ever want to shortchange the program. And so if that, you know, we have to do what we need to do to make sure that the students really get the, 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 the fullness of the program. And so, yes, we, it's not required, but it's absolutely um, provided as a, as a great alternative, uh, a great opportunity, if you will, for students um, across our counties. Budget Travel named it, named the Institute one of 15 places in the country that children should visit before they're 15. And also National Geographic said it's the hundred, one of the hundred places that can change your child's life. So yeah. that's really cool. Yeah, to to that aspect of what you're talking about. You know, I mean, I, I'm a witness and, and really an example because, again, I grew up coming to the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. And what I can really say is that at every age, it means something different to you, right? Even if you're coming in at nine years old and don't have really a context, our children are smart. They're bright. We, we, we should give them a little bit more credit for being able to sort of, they're having to, especially the current generation, they are really having to navigate some very sensitive, high-level concepts very early due to either exposure, uh, whether it be, you know, I'm not one of those people who's like, you know, oh, social media, whatever, but I am, you know, I with, you know, I'm the aunt of a nine-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 13-year-old, and a 15-year-old, and I can tell you that they they see stuff. I, I feel like sometimes I'm still trying to cover my eyes, and I'm about to be 40. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm like, how is this possible? You know, because when, when I was growing up, it, the, the TV was getting cut off if certain things came on, or it wasn't on. You know what I mean? Like, you it, well, you didn't see that on TV, on regular, just like 7 
o'clock TV. And so, you, didn't have it, you didn't have it in your hand every day. No, right. You know what I'm saying? You had to work to yeah. see something crazy. You know what I'm saying? So these yeah. days, they're just so exposed. And so I think that the Institute becomes uh, an incredible resource to counter some narratives, but also to reinforce some other narratives like community and love and justice and fairness and equality. You know, this is a place where they can learn those concepts in a non-traditional way, I would say, but in a way that's absolutely steeped in the tradition and the culture of social justice. I'm glad you pointed that out because I know that when the Institute was first starting, when they were trying to get it started, there was a lot of opposition because a lot of people in the area just wanted to forget about the past. They didn't want to recreate those hard visions of what the past represented. I read a quote that they started the Institute as history from the ground up. Neil and I, two white guys from predominantly white area, we learn the civil rights movement from what we read in history books. But I'm un- understanding now that if you go through the Institute, that it also celebrates those voices of those unsung heroes. Yeah. So if Phil and I were to visit to go through the Institute as two you know, white guys, what can we expect to, to learn and take from the Institute that we, we may not can read in history books, if that makes sense. Man, that's a, you know, that's such a layered question. It's a great question, Will and Neil. And I think I want to answer it in a couple of ways, particularly as we sit in the context of, you know, states literally saying, you, you know, we're not going to teach African-American history and we're not going to teach certain kinds or certain moments in our country's history. Um, because of whatever the, th- the theory may be, which makes places like the Institute now even more important, because it's not even about my biggest concern is when you cut off access to this kind of learning in an academic space, then you really don't know what people are going to learn um, and how they're going to associate as it relates to conversations around race and justice, right? And so I know that, you know, what we are able to provide, first of all, I would think for you all in in your particular disposition, I would say, is a safe space to learn it, right? Is a safe space to ask and to like really be able to see what sometimes I'll be, I would be honest and say, as a black person, I don't always feel that I, that I, I don't always feel the responsibility of, of having to navigate someone through what that was, right? And not because I don't feel um, that it's my responsibility to help educate people, but there's still trauma there that's associated with it, right? There's still, and I may not know every single thing. Um, and so I think that the brilliance of a place like the Institute is where, first of all, you it's a self-guided tour, unless you ask for a tour guide, which you can absolutely request, but it's a self-guided tour and it is curated in a way that starts with first, we have a film that talks about just what was the the conditions, like what, what had to be in place for a, for something like this to happen, right? So it, it actually starts back with the industrial, the, the conversation around how Birmingham began, its industrial heritage, um, the fact that in the iron uh, mines and everything, they had every sort of background you can think of. There were folks from all over, they called them immigrants, but they were literally people from so many different backgrounds. And they were all living in company housing at Sloss and Inslee and all of these other places. 
And honestly, it wasn't about race. At that point, it was a class conversation. If you were poor, you was in the back. If you had a little bit more money, you was in the front. That was it. You know what I'm saying? Um, But then there became, you know, a shift where, you know, with the presence of indentured servitude and, and other things, that system began to create the opportunity for an unjust system as it relates to human rights. And so um, it's important for people to see that because then people will just be like, well, how did this happen? Like what, you know, you know, there's always this question about just how did it happen? And, And it's also important for people to see, and I think you might not know, and I think a lot of people don't know, Birmingham had a very thriving African-American community prior to the civil rights, the moments of the civil rights uh, movement, and even afterwards. Post-World War II? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you had um, the first Black bank in this area, which we actually still bank with, Citizens Trust, was there. And you had the Carver Theater, which is still there. And and, in other places, you had a plethora of what we would call a self-sustained fully functioning community that a lot of people don't even know. And so when you talk about conversations around um, displacement, when you talk about conversations around land, when you talk about conversations around even food and access to food, it's important to have those conversations in the context of when you displace a people, you displace them from their, their natural resources as well. And so I think that's something you would learn. But what I think might be the best thing you would learn is that and I hope people know that you don't get to sort of a historic moment of being able to sign a Voter Rights Act or sign any kind of act without a diverse group of voices. And so in our history and in our museum, you will see the the voices of people who look like you, right, who were a part and integral to and, and marched with Dr. King, but also sat with Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth and Congressman John Lewis and put their bodies on the line first at counters and with the freedom rides and so many other things. And I think it helps when people see someone who also looks like them and their yeah. stories being told and the context of, no, you weren't, all, you know, you, you don't have to take on the, the, the pain of the villain. You could actually take on the pride of a participant because you were also represented, your people were also represented as part of the solution, which you may not even know about because that's not being taught as much in the history books, right? It's very rare that you, during the civil rights, when people talk about civil rights, did they talk, do they talk about anybody other than like the, the big three, I call them, you know, Martin Luther King, Harriet Tubman, yeah. you may get a Malcolm X, you may get, you know, <laughs> it just depends on which, you know, what it is, but it's very- Definitely not Fred Shuttlesworth. You're or... not going to hear Fred Shuttlesworth. You're not going to hear a Viola Louisa. You're not going to hear some of the other, you know, in- incredible, incredible freedom fighters who, without their service, and I think about, you know, Bloody Sunday, I think about so many different things that that required a diverse group of people to come together to make it happen. And in a lot of ways, you know, the results of their coming together is is what we're fighting for even now. So I think you'd be, I think there'll be many touch points for you to align your, your personal experience with. That's incredible. I know you mentioned the word class. I know Martin Luther King, towards the end of his his short, he was organizing towards the end around the poor people's campaign. Yep. Similar to that, I don't know if you're familiar with Charles Booker here in Kentucky. I am. Obviously, he ran for senator, but he also has started an organization, Hood to Holler, because Mm -hmm. he's from Louisville, a a bigger city. 
inner city Louisville, but he sees the similarities between inner city Louisville and the hollers of Eastern Kentucky, that marginalized poor also have those same challenges as the inner cities. And I think that's why he started this organization. Do you see a shift in civil rights or this movement of how it looks in the 21st century as opposed to the 20th century or, or, or what it looks like today? Oh, I think this is a great question because we have to remind ourselves that the March on Washington was not called the March on Washington. It was called the March on Washington for Jobs and Justice, right? So it was always a economic conversation at the root of a conversation around justice and equality. And when you talk about the Poor People's Campaign, which is now being led by Reverend Barber, who was just here with us on Friday, actually, the conversation of, I would say, the relationship between economic justice and, and social justice and racial justice, you cannot, um, you can't pull those things apart. They are integral to each other. And when I think about, and I know Charles Booker have, have, have uh, met him and talked with him several times. Um, and again, because I do have a personal background with Kentucky, my, my aunt lives in Louisville, I went to Berea. And so I, I'm, I'm always up and through there somewhere. Um, I yeah, said, Berea. Listen, I went, you know, Berea, shout out to, to Berea, Berea, we, we believe you. But what I think is important and, have, and, I, and what I think is brilliant about what Charles is doing is it reminds people that our experiences are not always so individualized, right? That what happened when the coal mine shut down in Appalachia and the devastation that came to so many areas that caused everything from alcoholism to food, to, to all the kinds of different things that devastated that are the same things that happened in the Black Belt, right? It's the same thing that happened in places where industry dried up and it impacted the community that was there, whether they had to displace themselves, you know, or they whether they were displaced or whether or not they tried to stay, right? It impacted them. And so a lot of times, again, when you can show the similarity and struggle, you can, it's easier to show the similarity and what's possible as well. And so I think this new iteration of civil rights, the challenging part is that we do feel that we are returning to activate on some of the same issues that we thought we had already activated around. But I will say that this new generation of fighters, freedom fighters, have a collective lens around just what's absolutely right and what's absolutely wrong. It's not always rooted in a color theory or a race theory. It's not always rooted in even a class theory or a um, gender theory. It's, It's really half of the time it's just, is this right or is it wrong? What do we value? Who are we as people? And I think that when you can kind of get to a value statement, you know, obviously we're going to always have our individual, the things that create our diversity, right? And those things are going to impact our values. It's going to impact how we exist in the world, what we think about and those things. And, and I don't think anyone should be relieved of those, of that diversity or, or have that taken away from them. But I do believe that we are facing, like when COVID, it wasn't a black or white issue. COVID really took out 
our communities as a whole. Now, the issue was it it had a larger, it disproportionately impacted marginalized communities because there was already an issue with access to healthcare in places like Appalachia and in the Black Belt, right? So it wasn't that COVID was taken out more, or you know, it wasn't that it was it was you know a race thing. It really was an indicator of where there has been a lack of institutional investment and development as it relates to um, healthcare. And so I think when we start having those conversations, again, it's a it's not always the easiest conversation to have, you know, at the football game. Is like, you know what I'm saying? You can't because right. you, you gotta you know you gotta dive into it. But that's what the institute can do. We can have incredible programs that bring you here to think, but then we can have, you know, we have research opportunities and opportunities for people to dig into the why more, right? Dig into the how more. You know, we like to say our research facility is open the same amount of hours as the, as the museum, right? And so you're there's always an opportunity for, you know, people to, and our, and our archivists are there and available to um, engage individuals. And so I think I'm excited because in as much that I get tired that we are dealing, that we're fighting for some of the same issues, I do think that the way we're fighting has the ability, if it hasn't always been, but has the ability to be more of a collective fight than an individualized fight. And I see that, you know, I even saw that when we were on the ground for George Floyd and others, There, it was a very diverse group of people who put their bodies out on the streets and on the line every day. So that encourages me. Yeah. I wanted to ask this question before I run out of time, but one question that we, uh, we always ask every guest that we have on, and, and I'm always curious to hear the different answers that we often get. What's the first thing that comes to your mind, or what's the first thing that rolls off the tongue when I say the word Appalachia? Um, country. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, I see, I literally vision like green hills and uh, it might be a little bit unfair because again, I went to college in Berea, which is smack dab in the heart of Appalachia. And so my experience with the Appalachian narrative, I think is a little bit probably more informed. And I'll honestly say, I did not know about Appalachia as a, as a region until I went to Berea. So it was never something that was taught to me, right? Like I knew about the black belt but I didn't know about Appalachia so I literally had to be taught you know what I'm saying about Appalachia and so when you're being taught about something obviously you're going to be informed a little bit more hopefully you're being informed with more context I wanted to ask you yeah born and raised in Birmingham do you recognize as an Appalachian you say you didn't understand the region until kind of you went to Berea but when I was at Berea, I probably absolutely would have said, you know, unequivocally that I'm Appalachian. I think because I do think that there's a difference and maybe you all can enlighten me. I think there's a difference between being Southern and being Appalachian. And so I definitely recognize myself as a Southerner, but I'm not sure that in this current iteration, I would recognize myself as an Appalachian, but I have been an Appalachian. And I have, you know, worked within that area and I still do work in those areas. And so I think that's the most honest way I could probably answer that in that context. Yeah, well, just always curious. Always good to hear those different perspectives. You yeah, know, yes. I mean, when people can't categorize a whole area, it always, you know, makes me look like, hmm, what are we doing? Because again, if you ha- if you have no context about the area, you're you're probably basing it off of some stereotype, right? That you've heard, or you know, somebody with a banjo, or it may be something like, you know, like 
the Beverly Hillbillies or something, you know what I'm saying, or whatever. And it's like, well, no, actually, you know what I mean? There's some very, very, there's something beautiful. One, one, I, I will say one thing that I that I thought about, about Appalachia was just like the people who know how to work the land and how to survive off of, you know, and, and, and farming and all those kinds of things. But that can be said about the South in general, right? It's a very industrial, you know, I think the industrial, I think, um, Again, I think of the devastation that happened, but again, that was because of the way I was taught about Ala- uh, Appalachia. It's 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 interesting. I'll be one. I'm gonna ask that at my at the table with my dad and mom and see what they say. We'll see. <laughs> I'll report back to you all. Yeah. <laughs> one other question we also ask all our guests as a follow up to that: place and perspective is really important in Appalachia. Yeah. We kind of ground our podcast on on place and perspective, but. We wanted to ask you just where do you call home? What makes it home for you? What makes it unique? Oh my, I call myself a global citizen all the time. If you know me and if you follow me on anything, I truly, you know, Birmingham is where I was raised. It is home. It's where my home is, it's where my family is, at least my immediate family. But I've been so blessed to travel and 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 be in community in so many places around the world. I mean, I've worked in Africa. I've worked in, you know, Trinidad and Tobago. I've worked in Israel. I've worked, you know, I've worked in all of these places. And so my favorite Bible scripture, which kind of informs all of this, it says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And it's us. And I tell people all the time, this is where I got my travel book from. I read that. And for some reason it translated in my mind is it ain't nowhere I can't go. (laughs) (laughs) In my mind, it translated is all this belong to me. So I need to be able to see. And I've always and, and, you know, and I think it's a credit to my parents who at the time really weren't really well traveled um, when I was growing up because they were very, very young. They got married very young and they had, you know, kids. And my dad was, he was in the military, but he was still stationed, you know, here locally. And my mom was an educator. So there wasn't a lot of international travel, but we were always going somewhere. They they believed in exposing us to different things. I tell people we didn't, we never had a summer. I, I, I'm, I'm just now getting a summer in my adulthood because we were always you know, going somewhere in somebody's science pro- program, whatever. And so between that and just the idea that they said, you know, they they wanted us to, to experience and see other things. So there was never a fear for me of like meeting new people and trying new things and engaging in new customs because it was always like there's something to to learn from that. And I'm really grateful that they that they sort of planted that, you know, it fueled in me the desire to want to see and want to know and want to meet people. And and so I, I I've traveled quite extensively and I feel at home pretty much anywhere in the world because I feel like people I found so many like spirited and like-minded people all over the world who you know some look like me and some do not and but I felt community and I think a global citizen is is the best way I can explain myself. It's a great answer you also talked about freedom fighters did you want to mention woke vote and Think Rubik's. I feel like woke 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 has kind of made you a global superstar. You know, you're talking to. <laughs> I think when you serve, it opens up so many opportunities, especially when you are meeting a, a, a need, right? And so nothing, anything that has happened with woke vote has always sort of blown my mind because it initially started in 2017 because we saw an opportunity to try to shift power back to a marginalized community, which were African-American voters in the state of Alabama, at least exercising their right to vote for a special um, call Senate, Senate race in which everybody in the world literally was saying there's no way 
that there can be a shift politically in Alabama and had given up, you know, on just even investing in people and giving them the opportunity. And we pushed back on that and said, we believe if you invest in marginalized communities, they can make the best decisions for themselves. And we had a model that proves that. And then we've been able to take that model, which is now called Woke Vote, which is actually getting, we're, in our, we're, we're at the end of our fifth year, we're getting ready to rebrand. It's now going to be called the Woke Vote Institute. Because what we found is that when you develop leaders, it's not just about the electoral process, right? This this translates into how people can actually um, solve material conditions for their communities. And so we are we are training and developing leaders who activate both socially and politically for a certain end and a certain good for their community. And so I'm super excited about that. I am always thankful for the work that I've done with Think Rubik's. I'm actually getting ready to transition out of Think Rubik's as well, because I do believe that once you've done, you know, you, I, I've been with them for five, we were together for five years. We've done some great work. This institute work is a little bit more, <laughs> uh, it's bigger than what I imagined. And so I believe that there's some opportunities to bring up the next person. So I'll be on the board but I'm going to let somebody else uh, lead for a while. So um, it's exciting. We're, you know, it's a transition time for me, but um, I feel that I'm smack dab in the middle of purpose. And so I'm excited about that. That's great. And, and thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate the conversation, the conversation we had about the Institute uh, yeah. rights in general, really just to learn more about it, learn more about you and, and what you're doing. We appreciate everything you're doing and thank you appreciate and thank that. you for taking the time. Thank you all for having me. This is a great platform. Looking forward to it. Well, as I assumed, I learned a great deal from Dewana and uh, really enjoyed her conversation and greatly appreciate her spending the time with us to educate us on many things. More importantly, to have a conversation with us about her daily life, what goes on at the Civil Rights Institute. I'm grateful she came on. I found it incredibly informative and interesting as well, especially how they refer to it as an institute and not it's way more than a museum. Also, she's a Berea College graduate. It was interesting to hear that. Carter Woodson, Dewana Thompson, Dr. Bill. I mean, there's been some prolific, profound individuals that have graduated from Berea College. Absolutely. It's right up the road for me. And uh, I'm a big fan of Berea and try to do anything and everything I can to, to support them. Obviously, those three people that you just mentioned are just a small sample size of the great individuals that have come from Berea College. Some of the cool things they do in education uh, down there in Birmingham specifically is uh, unique as well and an incredible opportunity for uh, local students there. That aspect was really cool. And when she kind of dove into what you can expect to learn when you go through the museum, regardless of your past, regardless of your history or knowledge of history. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. My next stop in Birmingham with the families. Neil, I, I, I was going to ask you, do you have a app biz of the week for us this week? Well, Will, I do. I wanted to pick one in Birmingham and I came across this place in, in research and think it's a great opportunity to highlight this business. It's called Creed 63. And the whole mission of Creed 63 is to assist in the economic development and historical dignity of the local community 
of the National Historic Civil Rights District and its entrepreneurs by way of providing a space that's vibrant, promotes culture, and assists entrepreneurs through community programming, business resources, small business startup education, and the development of sustainability programming for community business owners right there in Birmingham. So what you like to say, a co-working place, uh, CREED actually stands for Community Resources Entrepreneurship Education Development. And the 63 on the end, they they added just kind of as a tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, because 1963 was the year uh, of his famous I Have a Dream speech. So this business located there in, in Birmingham is a great asset to the community and one that I felt like we should definitely highlight. Very cool. It's right there in the Civil Rights District, which Ms. Thompson referenced which is where the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute is as well. So I think that's a great shout out, great at biz of the week. Anybody in the area is listening, they can they can check it out at uh, creed63.com and you can book it online and, and reserve your spot today. I want to give a, an additional shout out to Miss Thompson for her love of appetizers. Oh, yeah. And multigrain Tostitos. Yes, she knows what's up. <laughs> <laughs> but, but also want to thank her again for her time, her knowledge and everything that she's doing there in Birmingham, as well as globally, as she referenced herself as a global citizen. Yeah, I'm just uh, grateful that that she came on with us and uh, bright, bright future. It's been very bright for her uh, so far in her life. What a great uh, representative she's been. Great representative of Birmingham, great representative of Appalachia. So since we made it through that biz of the week, I guess, Neil, we can end it like we usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting thin. Now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long. Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs. Now I'm back up where I belong in the mountains.